All right, my guest this week on the Dragzine podcast is legendary engine builder and racer, Pat Musi. What's going on, Pat? Uh, it's a morning here, you know, I've been going since nine. Uh, I'm ready for you, whatever you can throw on me, whatever the fans can throw on me, I'm ready to go. Yeah, that, that's, what, uh, that's what I like about you, Pat. It's always, you know, boom, you go at it, you're ready to go. That's, I think that's true with a lot of the old school guys is there's no prim and there's no pamper. When you're used to working on your own stuff, driving the rig to the track, you're pretty much, when, it, when it's time, it's time, right? Yeah, and I probably learned from, you know, all the, a lot of them ain't around now, all the best. You know, Vinny Knapp, I tell everybody this story, was probably the best promoter I ever met at English Town, you know, and he would hire me because of, I was good on my feet, you know, back then, but I learned from the old guys, Nicholson, Jenkins, you know what I mean? We're at the end of the day, we are racers, but we're entertainers and you just have to learn how to have thick skin, how to have rivalries and have fun and go have a beer after it's over. Oh man, you have set the table for so many of the questions I want to ask right there. It's great. <laughs> and you know, we'll, we'll go right into one of the ones, you know, a lot, some of the newer fan, your fans might not realize you used to race pro stock, used to race pro mod, used to race period, you know, what a kind of, of out of pro stock and pro mod, you know, which was your favorite to actually race? I'll tell you going back, you know, to the old days, I had a lot of fun in pro street with Tony Christian, but I, as a kid, I'm 17 years old. I'm reading hot rod magazines about Don Nicholson, Bill Jenkins, uh, just socks and Martin, all of them. And then here I am 20 some years old, not only racing them, beating them, you know, getting booked at Matt races and English town. That's kind of how I got my start. And, uh, you'll never have them days. I don't think we, we're coming close. You know, some of the street outlaws, I try to bring rivalries, you know, a lot of them don't have the thick skin. I try to get them on the side and say, look, it's a show. Relax. Don't, don't take it to heart, you know. I mean, we're here to entertain people. And, you know, the match race days and the old school pro stock stuff, I think is something that a lot of people tend to forget or don't realize is a pro stock wasn't an official NHRA class till, you know, 50 some years ago. And even then it was still something where a lot of these guys, you know, would you, you would book match races in on like a Wednesday night and have a quick six shootout with some of the biggest legends in pro stock at a local track. Yeah, and we got to, I mean, I survived on that. That's how we did it back then. T-shirt sales, match racing. I can remember doing a Friday night, a Saturday night, and a Sunday, you know, starting in Manassas, Virginia, me, Lee Edwards, Iaconio, but did a lot in English town with Jenkins and Nicholson. Got a funny story about that, I can tell you. We well, tell, um, tell away. Let's hear it. Well, we're there, you know, and it was about the time – I think it was when we made the first seven second run when 795 that day at English Town about they rolled out of the stands. I think the next closest car was Nicholson at 820 something. So my old man used to go with me back then. So I'm 20. My old man's 50. You know, he's younger than I am now. You know, and Nicholson walks up. This is no lie. Nicholson walks up to my old man. He says, You got to talk to your kid. Says, what do you mean? He says he's really starting to make us look bad. You got to tell him to slow down. And my old man looked at him. Yeah, okay. I'll see how that goes over. <laughs> it was just great days, you know. I mean, I don't know if we'll ever have them back, but I was always hardcore racer. But I always paid attention to taking time out for my fans and promote myself. And if there was an argument, I was right in the middle of it. Everybody knows that about me. I'm sure you know, but. Uh, and, you know, that that to me, one of my favorite, like I love nostalgia racing, but nostalgia pro stock cars, when you see, you watch some of these old videos on YouTube, you know, Grumpy out there putting the gold dust down, you know, but himself brushing out, doing some dry hops. That was pro stock racing. That was part of the allure. It was, you know, pack stands, people yelling because of the show that they put on and then the performance afterwards. Yeah. Well, I tell that to everybody. I mean. They'll probably hate me for this, the ones that are doing it now, but it's the Millionaires Club who can spend the most money. That's really what pushed me out of pro stock. It just got out of my money deal. If you didn't have a, you know, a sugar daddy or a sponsor or 
whatever it just got out of reach you know it was who could outspend who you know and i, I think it still is like that you know where promod we still have you know the ingenuity you got to keep developing stuff i try to stay on my game i mean we've been pretty successful to hold them off here for seven eight years i think and uh that's a pretty good run in this sport to have but uh it uh, pro stock back in those days will never, you know, like you said, we drove the rigs to the track. We set the cars up. Sure. They weren't as uh, technical as they are today, but at the time they were. Oh, it's, it's insane. When you like think about what a pro stock ran back in the day is what like a super comp car you know, could easily run or a super gas car. That's what they run these days. That's just, to me, that's amazing. That really, really is. Oh, it's crazy. I can remember when we went that 795, you know, in Englishtown. And God, we thought that was like, <laughs> you know, the deal. And it was at that day. I mean, they about fell out of the stands. But Richie Zool was helping me. Everybody knows that name was uh, helped me at the track that day. And the first one, we shook so bad, the door fell off the car. So we didn't know what tire shake was. We were just really starting to get into that zone, you know. <laughs> and I come back around and Richie goes, maybe the drive shaft's out of balance. I said, I don't know. I don't think so. Anyway, we figured it out. You know, I kind of, in those days, we didn't even have a two-step. You got to kind of drive it, two-foot it, you know, do what you had to do. So we kind of eased it off the start line, worked around it. But that was the beginning of really when we started to get in the tire shake and started to learn and, you know, we went to a four link, they were ladder bar cars, you know, so. And I think that's interesting. We're seeing that scenario kind of play out now with as power increases, you learn things and you see that, you know, probably throughout every era that you've raced in, but in modern pro mod racing, it's like you find that little bit of information, you figure stuff out and then you're, you're in a whole new world. And that's, you see a lot of that now. And I think pro mod racing. Yeah, you do. And you know, it, I don't know that I could do it on my own. I'll just flat tell you now it takes a team. You know, we got, um, you know, chassis guys. I'm the engine guy. I don't want anybody to go near my engine tune up, you know, but uh, it takes a crew now. Back then, yeah, you could do it all, you know, but now it does take people to do it. It's uh, a lot more, a lot more work, you know, and then I set a customer here today and it's all about, testing and laps and it, uh, at the end of the day it comes down to trial and error just like it was in those days you could sit here and draw it out on paper till you get to the racetrack and do it you don't know i had lyle barnett on the show and was talking about him running in pro mod and he said something along those lines that i found very interesting when they were trying to you know ask them what's it like to shake one of those cars down and the guys at modern racing basically said it cost us x amount of dollars to send this car down the track every pass has to count. And I think that's what really plays into what's made these cars faster these days. There's you, you try to make every pass count and learn what you have to learn and get something out of it and not waste the parts, the opportunity and the wear on everything. Absolutely. There's another deal to that whole story. So you have to, you go to a racetrack, you can't be the only car there. You know, we try to test, like when we went to Bradenton, we've only run the pro nitrous car this year four times, but uh, uh, me and Dino Marinas got together. We ran those two cars identical, you know, sharing information. So we had two cars worth of information, but we had a hundred and some cars there. We had 35 pro mods that we could gauge off of. Wound up third and fourth qualifier. I think we could have went to the top. I mean, 59 was low. You know, we went 61. We needed a couple more runs. It came down the laps. But what I'm trying to say is you can't just rent the track and be the only car there. If you don't have anything to gauge off of or the rubber or, or a groove or cars going down, it's hard to find a place to test. As a lot of people don't know that, but that's really critical. Well, you, you need to simulate race day conditions. You need to know what the car is going to do on race day. When, you know, you go to any PDR race, pro mods aren't the only thing going down the track. The track's going to change. You need to have that data to know what's going to do. Exactly. And you'll go from one racetrack to the next. Everybody's, you know, 
well, can you help me with a tune-up? Well, it doesn't work like that. You've constantly got to get to the next track, figure out what that needs. You need to look at your data and you need to adjust to that racetrack. It's not a one fits all. There's no way it's never going to happen. And going off of that too, I think it's something that viewers and listeners need to pay attention to as well. When you're at the track or you're watching on TV, look at how many times you see crew guys or racers out there well before their car comes out. They're always up there looking at the track and they look at it as quick as up until the last second because the track's changing constantly. Oh, absolutely. We'll make calls literally when Lizzie's suited in the car belts on. And I can't tell you what those calls are, but it's calls that we can make on the fly that we do last minute. We still have calls to make. We try to make them all in the pits. But like I said, we have a couple of final deals. You know, one of them I could let out, you know, wheelie bars where we're going to do them. Do we need wheel speed? Do we not need wheel speed? You know, things like that. And you got to be on your game. I've literally seen radio tire crew chiefs on the headset. Like the car is not in the burnout box. It's at the ready line. And they will tell the crew guys, put two more clicks in the back, in the shocks, do this, do that. Like they're making that call even right before it goes, you know, they fire it up and go to the burnout box. Absolutely. Yeah. You're right on. Switch gears a little bit. And when you were on our, our show burnout earlier this year, you got to tell some stories about rivalries and you've had some pretty interesting and bitter ones over the years when you were driving and even as a tuner as well, you know, let's talk about some of your rivalries and drag racing, you know, who, who were the biggest ones against and what was it like? What's it like to race or, you know, tune against those people? I guess my first one was Jenkins. We just kind of, you know, he was close. Vinny would love to, you know, pit us against each other and, with an ongoing rivalry, and I got to run the old man and beat him. I don't know if a lot of people don't know this story, but uh, in 81, he came to me and uh, over the phone, he said, look, I'm looking for somebody to drive my car. It's either going to be you or Ray Allen. I said, well, I'm interested. Let me know, you know, what you think. Well, make a long story short, what kept us apart was Ray camped out there took him to lunch every day. I'm running a business. I got to be at the shop, so I can't do that. I can't, you know, be up there uh, trying to make my case. So Ray wound up getting a deal. 81 that year was the first year I ran NHRA Pro Mod, and we were low ET at Indy that year, and we had a good year. I finished fourth in NHRA Pro Mod. I I mean, I'm sorry, Pro Stock. And uh, the old man comes up to me, and he goes, well, I guess I picked the wrong one. <laughs> so, we were rivals. We were fierce rivals. But, you know, he saw that I had that uh, will to do it, you know, and ran good. I did everything myself, you know, came up with a kind of a different engine combination. And but so he was my first one and learned a lot, you know, from there. And then I guess my next big one was me and Tony Christian. I mean, we went on for years and. People thought we were slugging it out. Sometimes we were. <laughs> so we get into it pretty good. But we're friends. I talk to them probably a couple times a week now. You know, we're still good friends. But we knew how to separate it and not take it to heart. I'm not going to mention any names, but there were a couple out there just couldn't take it. They couldn't handle me or Tony. Tony was hard on one female driver, you know, and she. we just try to tell her, look. We're entertainers. It's a rivalry. Just go along with it or come back at us. We're not going to, you know, take it to heart. But you need to learn. You get, like you said at the beginning of the show, you got to have thick skin. Tony's got thick skin, and I do. And that's what makes a rivalry good. Do you think that that in the rivalry scheme of things, when you're racing against top-level people like that, you know, the even when it's fun ribbing, is it important to have that ability to – take and give psychological warfare as a racer? Oh, absolutely. And getting to that point, now it's funny. Lizzie grew up as a little kid, you know, with me and watched me race. And she saw all that going on. It's a, it's amazing what kids observe, you know. And uh, now in the street outlaw to no prep deal, she's got a couple, not really rivalries, but those guys are a little, I, I, I'm probably going to get beat up again for this, but they're a little green. 
I mean, JJ told him they get mad at JJ because he's good at what he does. He's a hustler. But you don't talk to, you never let the guy you're going to race know your weakness. And I'll watch him and they'll come up to Lizzie and say, uh, hey, I need a little time to get my turbo spooled up. And Lizzie looks at him. Yeah, okay. <laughs> oh, oops. <laughs> she, she just learned a weakness. She learned from me, you know, and she, you'll exploit it. I mean, that's what we do as racers. Never let your opponent know your weakness. I just find it hard to believe they haven't figured that out, but they will. Yeah, again, you say you look for any advantage you can gain, and it's funny to watch how some people have the ability to deal it out and take it, and how they, like you said, they use it to their advantage, and it really, it builds to the point where people are interested in what you're doing. Is that something that, you know, kind of helped you back in those those pro street days was to be able to build your brand and build business based on those rivalries? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and like I said, if I see a weakness in a driver, I'm going right to it. Just like a boxer hurt somebody in one eye. Where do you think they're going? They're going for that eye. Uh, same thing racing. You know, I mean, you see a weakness and you go for it. It's funny. It really, it does. It plays into how you do things and it builds that mystique up. A great example is, uh, you know, we raced with Jason Lee for many years up here in the Midwest, small tire racing. And you know, when you had to race Jason Lee, you had to bring your A game because he was good. He also liked to talk a lot of trash. And there were some people that just didn't do well with it. We just roll with it. You have fun with it. But you could definitely tell where it, you stack that on top of someone that performs well and people that aren't ready, they're going to swing a miss, you know? Oh, yeah. No doubt. I mean, exploit it. It just happened at one of them no prep deals. Like I said, it was – I'm sitting back watching, and one of my guys says – because we have a rule. We don't let Lizzie – talk to you know drivers are trying to open her door when she's getting her game on in the car i don't like anybody talking to her i'll talk to her on the radio but do not open that door um but uh he kind of got her attention before she got in the car and one of my guys says ain't you gonna say anything i said no she knows what to do i know exactly what she's gonna do and i just shook my head as this guy just gave her her wig gave him his weakness up, you know, and uh, she exploited it, and that's what happens. <laughs> just, are you going to get away with the same thing every time? Absolutely not. But you get that chance to get in there, Brian, you take it. I think from a modern perspective, someone that kind of ex got exploited was, you know, when Steve Torrance got double balled, then he got a little huffy over it, and Cameron Rafay kind of brought that out. You know, guess what you saw the following season? Guys were double bulbing Steve Torrance because they figured out he didn't like it. You know, you just, you got to keep that to your chest. You know, getting back to, I remember a funny story. You want to hear some stories. We, um, they had the first, Borla put up five grand for the first Pro Street car to go over 200. So my Camaro had that, didn't have the front end like Tony had got the Camaro at that point And it had an overhang. We had no overhang. So I made a, a legal license plate bracket that kind of stuck out. And so anyway, we're at Rockingham and I'm the first one. I think I went like 201, you know, and Tony comes over and uh, you take that license plate bracket. You're not going 200 nothing. It's because I suppose I got to do with speed. And he was just bent out of shape. I could have took it off was my other alternative. Or I took the other tack because it was getting to him. I was telling him, how, how much do you think that's worth? It's worth at least two mile an hour. I said, well, I'm going to go 203 the next run. We good then? Yeah, we'll see. I went right out there went 203, but I never took that plate off because it would irritate the hell out of them. And that was just one of the deals. Oh, yeah. That, it, it's part of, like you said, playing that game. You know, Gary Ormsby would put a cover over the gas pedal on his car, just a simple little cover on the top field drags over a, a throttle pedal. And other teams are like, what's going on? You know, they, they start thinking. And it's at that level of competition, like you said, the license plate, just things like that that push people. You find a way to push their button and see if you can get them to flinch. Oh, yeah. And, you know, back those days, we had the turbos were just starting to come in well. 
they were having a lot of trouble staging. I would get into, I literally almost got into a fist fight in Orlando with a terrible guy at the finish line because I hung him out. Well, you had to. They had us covered so bad. The only way we could beat them is that way. And I'll tell you, to this day, if I run a turbo car, no hard feelings, guys. I'm going to do what I can to make your life miserable on that starting line. And Lizzie's got good on it. She gets beat up for it. Don't worry about it. She goes, I ain't worried about it. She's Lizzie's come a long way as a driver. I think she got a lot of it from me, you know, and uh, she's seasoned now and she knows what to do up there. And as a person that's crewed on turbo cars and owns a turbo car, you have to be ready for that situation. And if you're not, guess what? That's on you, bro. Exactly. (laughs) We literally told our transmission builder, Rodney at RPM Transmissions, we're like, we want to be able to sit on the brake for an infinite amount of time, you know, more than what's needed because people are going to play games. And guess what? When you have that ability and someone's trying to play a game with you and it backfires, you know, again, it's all about being prepared to being able to push right back Absolutely. at them. We Not- can't get away what we used to with the turbo guys. But, you know, if we see a weakness, we're going to take it. You see a weakness, you're going to take it. You know, I mean, it's uh, you got to be ready for everything. Like I tell Lizzie, you know, they could completely change your game knowing what you're going to do. But she's been able to adjust to it. You have to be able to adjust. When you're up there, you got to be ready for anything. And you see all good drivers do that. You know, you've seen someone like Steve Jackson have a problem with the car and like wouldn't start major issue where other people might panic. He's probably on the radio. All right, cool. Let's do this, this, this fires back up, still bangs out a good light. It's not, it's having that, that coolness about you to be able to get through a situation that's going to make the difference. Absolutely. Lizzie's been in them situations. I have, you know, you've got to be able to keep your cool and, when that door closes, it's all over. You know, you got to be able to keep your cool and do your job. You know, let, let's shift gears a little bit. Let's talk about, you know, nitrous racing and, you know, in the pro mod world and, you know, pro mods on radials and, you know, all that fun stuff with nitrous. It, it's funny. I did a couple of article years ago about talk to some, some nitrous companies about what they were doing to, you know, what's pushing nitrous along. And I'd like to get your take on what's making, you know, nitrous pro mods and, you know, nitrous on radio cars, the, some of the quicker and faster cars now. I think just the tunability just happens to suit it well, you know, but um, we've been fortunate there. The, uh, let's just say that we've adapted well, the radial tire guys have adapted well to the nitrous combination. Seems like some of the other ones struggle a little bit, but. Look, they're all pretty tight out there right now. I mean, Stevie can make a run at any time. Uh, I think David Reese has a screwcharger, I believe. I, I don't really pay attention to that much. I pay attention to my customers and the nitrous deal, but I feel like we're really competitive. Um, the NHRA deal, I don't know how much we want to get into that because I just don't think they've reeled it in you know it's it's all about who writes the bigger check for what combination gets the deals how i see it you know me you don't want to know don't ask me oh we're, we're gonna get to some nhr talk here in a few but <laughs> you know with, with the nitrous racing stuff it just it fascinates me because for the longest time that well for the longest time there was a time where people say nitrous dead nitrous is dead it's you know it, it boost all the way and then all of a sudden the guy by the name of marcus burke goes out there and absolutely crushes everybody's hopes and dreams in the radio world you know that, that's not by an accident that's by you know a combination of being able to figure the car out the weight and you know the nitrous side of things correct absolutely he's done really well for us for nitrous you know somebody said that to me the other day aren't you worried that the nitrous your business is going to suffer well, I'm at my age, I definitely ain't worried about it. I mean, we'll continue on, you know, but I'm going to have my customers. Yeah, did we have some jump chip and go to the pro charge? But guess what? Without mentioning names, you look at those teams, they are in the same spot they were with the nitrous stuff because that's where they are as racers. They haven't figured out how to win. The biggest thing, we'll get into that if you want, but you have to know how to win. You know that. I mean, a lot of these guys don't know how to put it all together and when they get out the fastest car, you know, but they just, they're hit and miss, you know, but um, 
the ones we lost to pro chargers we gained like i said in the radio world with marcus we got jr gray now we got tons of guys around the country that you know not everybody can afford to do that pro charger deal or they're just dedicated nitrous guys so we have plenty of work i'm not worried about it we, we've just built a new building down the street by mooresville dragway will just be a race car shop so we're in a pretty good position right now and I, i'm not worried about nitrous isn't going away oh no it it comes down to being able Every combination has its advantages and disadvantages based on the rules and the conditions and how you can do it. Like you said, how you know how to win and it's being able to understand all of that and making it all happen, I think is what really defines what you're going to do as a racer and with the nitrous stuff. And I always joke that the Bruder brothers are going to come out with a nitrous X 275 car. That's their entire plan the entire time was to get it to the point where the nitrous rules are exactly where they wanted but look at you like i said with with what marcus and jr did is that the nitrous stuff for the longest time wasn't seen as competitive and then once it got figured out it just takes that it takes that tuning side the hardware's there but putting it all together you know you can't you got to have more than a pocketbook a pocketbook helps but you get by to put it all together make it work you gotta make it and laps and laps and data and data like we spoke about. I mean, um, I want to give a, I mean, Stevie's done a hell of a job with Marcus and JR. Takes a little, like I said, I'm the engine guy. I tell everybody, look, can I run the car myself? Yes, if I have to. And we've done it with Lizzie, you know, but um, you need help, you know, and Stevie's been a great uh, tuner for those guys on the chassis part of it and does his own engine deal. He uses the highway fuel injection. So, but he's, Pat, your stuff is durable. I can lean on it. We don't have to work on it. I mean, everybody knows that about our stuff. We don't have the heads off like the rest of them. You'll go around the PDRA pits. We're eating hot dogs, and those guys got heads off and pistons. I'm not doing that. I am not racing like that. I did that in the old days when we were, we called it learn why you burn program back then, you know, but. You ain't lying there. I've seen many times where nitrous guys have made an unfortunate miscalculation and it leads to them saying, get the rack out because they got to go through and put a whole new rack in it because something bad happened. Yeah, exactly. So I, I think we've proven our, you know, we have durability or stuff and stuff. You know, and I was telling somebody the other day to get that durability. I'm a pro stock guy, so I come from power, try to make the motor make as much power as you can, but I have to give up some power in a lot of areas so I could put more nitrous to it. So, you, you know, there's that. And we've learned that. And I think we've come to a really solid nitrous combination now that we can pour the coals to and get it to live. Speaking of pouring the coals to, you know, I've been very fortunate. I grew up around quarter mile racing. I got, I've got to see eighth mile come along too. I like both forms of racing. I like anything that's loud, fast, and dangerous. Right. There is a huge difference between eighth mile and quarter mile pro mod racing. A lot of people don't realize you just can't say, oh, I'm going to throw my eighth mile car on the pro on a quarter mile track and go, you know, make some laps. It doesn't work like that. You know, what are some of the differences that, you know, that people might not understand with pro mods that, that, you have to change to be able to do both. Well, gearing is a big deal. I just got that question asked to me uh, yesterday because I got a guy and uh, Robert Hayes. We did a new motor for him and a team that he works on in Bahrain. And he asked me how fast it should go. They're going to run eighth mile with a 903. As Robert, it depends on what gear you're going to run. And it's a big deal. You know, we run a different rear end gear, so it's not as fast as the eighth. Tune-up wise, we have to turn off at least the sixth stage, sometimes the fifth stage at the eight mile mark. We could stretch it a little farther. Depends how long you want to light that fuse for, but things like that. It's it, it's a different deal. And and the driver now, Lizzie's take. We had to get her license. We went to Virginia, and uh, we were you know a little nervous. She was going to go close to two fifty. You know, we figured just kind of legging it down there to get a license so we put a cone out at a thousand foot and she made it like a champ pulled the shoots at a thousand went like 220 i think 590 something at 220 you know quick and it 
So she come back. I said, Lizzie, what do you think? She goes, once I got through the eighth, it was just driving. She said she didn't really, if the car is under control by then, you're okay. Other than a lot of bad things can happen. Shoots don't open. You're going 250. So, you know, as a father, I got that in my head. So we were being really careful. Went to Virginia, which has a lot of shutoff. I said, well, you think you can make it to the finish line? She said, yeah. We figured she'd go 240, you know. She went 250 on her next license run, but she was perfect. You know, the car was lined up straight. We made we kind of killed it for the first state to get it because she's never been quarter mile, but she took to it pretty well. But as a that's another point probably we should make, you know, that everybody forgets about shutting these cars off properly, getting the chutes out, driving into the chutes. Well, you can get away with a lot in the eighth mile that you can't in the quarter mile. Yeah, that I, I've shot pro like quarter mile pro mods, and it's a different feel when those when a door car comes through the quarter mile at two fifty and bangs those shoots. A lot of stuff's happening; they're moving very fast, and it's almost like a sonic boom. And people think that even with all the modern, we'll call them conveniences that these cars have. As a driver, you still have to be on your game, especially at the top end in a 250-mile-an-hour door car because the smallest thing goes wrong, and you're in a world of hurt and hurry. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, getting back to that, if you think about a lot of the crashes at any right, they're all before the eighth mile. I mean, that's where those cars are really going into gear. Once they go into high gear, yeah, you'll make the rest of it, not a lot can happen unless, you know, you blow a tire out or a drive shaft comes out. or, But then the shutoff becomes way more critical than an eighth mile car. Oh, I've right. driven, you know, I've been 245, you know, in my career. But um, I crashed in Atlanta because of the chutes didn't open. And Atlanta hadn't been fixed and it was rough. And the car started bouncing. I was getting it under control. And just hit a bump, shot me over at the wall. I broke my back back then in 2011. Came back, race, stayed here all 2012, and then kind of handed it over to Lizzie. So a lot of bad things can happen, like you said. Yeah, that's anytime we go quarter mile racing with a radio car, even when I'm quarter mile racing, even in a 10 second car, and you're going 100, 120 miles an hour might not seem like a lot these days but it's still 120 miles an hour. And if you hit anything at 120 miles an hour, it is going to hurt. Oh, yeah. Well, I went off at, I went through the lights at 243 and made a right. So what could I have scrubbed off? 40 miles an hour. I hit that wall. It hurt. I can tell you that. uh, Yeah, it's, and that's the big thing with quarter mile and eighth mile. Like you said, the gearing and the tuning changes and stuff like that, that it's not just a matter of even just like you said, just the gear change. It's more than that because any of these cars, that back half the track is like critical mass, especially in a nitrous car. Cause you made point perfect there. How long do you want that fuse lit? Exactly. Exactly. It, you know, let's talk some NHRA stuff. You know, they, they let the 959 in. And there's some nitrous racers that started doing pretty well with it. You know, now that there's a year under the belt or well, we'll say a year because 2020 wasn't a full year of racing, but what you learned last. You don't know if 21 is going to be a full year, but we let, said no politics. So. Let, well, you just in general these days, you don't know what's going to no, happen. No, we don't know. You have no idea, <laughs> you know, and. With with that being said, you know, what, what are nitrous racers now that they have a year learning about these motors with quarter mile racing with the NHRA, you know, wh- what do you think they're going to be able to do this year? So interesting you say that. We've had a lot of customers swap over, you know. Well, Chad Green, you know, I think is going to make the switch. Uh, but we're concerned about crankshaft life, life but – at the end of the day, if you get 40 runs versus 80 runs, I mean, do the math. I mean, it's twice the distance. I mean, if that becomes another cycle book, listen, everything has a cycle time. Rods, pistons, rings. So crankshaft will be a cyclable part. You know, it is now. I mean, we know what we can run those six-inch cranks in eighth mile 
We really don't know the quarter mile yet, but we're getting ready to find out. Uh, but that, that would be the only concern. You know, we don't, that comes down to maintenance, Brian, and that's really important. Don't run it till it breaks. No. You got to look at it. I mean, if we mag it, typically we'll go 50 runs mag it, then every 25 runs mag it. And then, you know, at 80, even if it's good, we'll pitch. It. But, um, you know, it may be a case where we do it every 25 runs now just to see where we're at. You know, if we see any little bit of signs of it, you know, but uh, we're working on some things for that. But uh, that'll be the one issue is the crankshaft, we think. And I think that that touches on a point a lot of people don't realize is, you know, they see nitro cars getting torn down every run and that whole deal. But door cars too, pro stock and pro mod, you cyclable items. I don't know how many times I've seen these cyclable items get tossed even when they're questionable you know like blower guys will tell you i know i have x amount of runs on these rods until they come out don't care if they're mic and right they're good to go they are coming out because the last thing you want to do is create a viewing hole in the side of a block exactly and then aside from that a lot of things can happen you know we have engine blankets we have uh, carbon tubs. I mean, but things can get out of there, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, you have the driver's concern, you know, on a blow up. I mean, look at a fuel car. They blow up. It can get ugly real fast. You know, it's the same thing with a pro mod car, you know? I mean, so we're well, pretty good about that. Look at what happened at Eric at Norwalk a couple of years ago at that nasty fire that she had, you know, it's, it's a matter of you learn from that. And that, I think it's very interesting that, you know, it's not the performance side, it's the maintenance and that side of the stuff that's more of a concern with the 959 and the quarter mile. Because I think, that on the, like you said, on the performance side, it showed a lot of the potential that's there, but it's the maintenance stuff. It's those, those unknowns that, you know, we, we've ran this engine for so long, we know what it's going to do. We're putting this new one out there. You know, what do we need to watch out for? Yeah. Well, you know, I'm probably going to get some heat over any tray with this, but that brings me to something, you know, they went to that covered transmission deal well guess what you can't see that thing leaking until it's too late and you think that don't catch on fire and ain't gonna burn that carbon they have on there Ooh. i'd rather be able to see why didn't they do a blanket they do some of the dumbest stuff i've ever said that's why i will not let lizzie ever go to an energy race i've been asked i will not let her run any tray because i don't agree with some of it I just don't. Brian, think about it. Your transmission's completely covered. What, yeah, sure, you take the cover off between rounds, but you can't. What if a driver's in a burnout box and spraying transmission fluid? Now he or she can't see it. You know, and then this other deal, out of the blue. Well, the driver's got to shift them. Well, you got guys that drive two-handed. I don't. I wouldn't have a problem. I drive one-handed. Now you're going to take a two-handed driver for what? What is their reason? Where do they come up with this stuff? You know, that that was one of the uh, the, the rules that was – some people definitely, oh, well, it's going to make it more like racing again. You know, they got to shift the car. But it definitely brings up the point like you just have right there. There's some people that are not used to it, and that takes some learning. And at those speeds, that's kind of – kind of terrifying to have that kind of learning curve well, and in a hurry you know what i'm saying i mean at the end of the day what's it gonna do what they're saying that some of these crashes happen because the cars went into gear changes well there's ways we all have ecus we can fix that why didn't they ask us you know or you listen you take your foot out of quick shifting you know if the guy's not going to take his foot out of it i don't care if you shifted it or the ECU is shifting it, the same result's going to happen. You know, I mean, they do this stuff out of the blue. Don't ask anybody. I've never, I was never asked. I think I'm a logical guy to come to. I drove, I won Norwalk shifting it. So I know how to do it with a clutch, no less. Okay. So they said, well, you're only going 598. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> that, that's it. <laughs> only. Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm not too worried about it but the way we run these cars now they got to come out of low gear so early 
you know, it, it's going to be difficult for even the seasoned guys, you know, but the two-handed drivers, I'm worried about them struggling a little bit. You know, I watch them, you know, and I try to teach Wizzy to more or less drive one-handed, but the automatic cars have made it where they, um, they, uh, sorry about that. It happens. <laughs> but, um, I, you know, try to break Wizzy out of it, you know, be a one-handed driver, you know, just for that reason, you know, shoot handle, the button doesn't work or, uh, so I've always been a one-handed driver. That's just how I've driven my whole career. But this automatic deal has come along, and it's made a lot of two-handed drivers out of people. You know, it's funny. I was talking to Dino Marinas about it. He goes, it's funny you say that. I was always a one-handed driver till we went to automatics. Now I've become a two-handed driver. I got to, you know, learn to just lay my – me, even if I've made, you know, some shots in the automatic car and Lizzie's car and – scuff tires in for customers at Mooresville. But as soon as I get my finger off the trans brake, my hands down at the transmission where it's free shoots, you know, I just, I, I never gotten that habit, but it, it's going to be difficult. I mean, there'll be a little bit of a learning curve. Hopefully it goes well, but I just don't agree, you know, with some of the things that they do, you know, you know, and it, it's funny you mentioned being one-handed versus two-handed and the transition I'm making with my own car. And the, my partner told me of the car, we're already talking about our game plan for, you know, where do we want stuff laid out? You know, how do we want to do this? You know, because we're going to have to shift the car manually. And then, you know, where do we want to put our, our parachute level out? What's going to be more comfortable for you? That takes some adjustment to figure that out where you make it muscle memory because you might have to make a split-second decision. And if you're not used to it, that, that's a problem. Yeah. Let me tell you something about muscle memory and it happened to me and look how many laps I've got thousands of laps in a clutch car. Uh, I got in Lizzie's car in Michigan and they were laughing at me because I come out of the burnout slammed on the brakes. Well, these automatic cars, they put the brake pedal where the clutch pedal is for what reason? I don't know. Well, your normal brain, your robot, I call it, tells you to step on a clutch well it happened to be a brake pedal so i skidded the tires you know but and it, it takes a couple of laps to get used to that so yes there is a lot of like you say robot training you know that's in there that they're gonna have to break themselves out of you know it's uh it, there was a study done i i've never seen it but i've heard about it they made a bike a pedal bike that when you turn left it turned right when you turn right it turned left well, it took people a month to figure out how to ride that thing. Oh, yeah. Easily. <laughs> Just think about it. I actually called Bickle, me and him, you know, are really good friends. I said, Jerry, whose idea was it to put the brake pedal where the clutch pedal is? Well, it's the automatic guys, and they don't drive anything. But on, I said, well, what if they drive a clutch car? I said, let me ask you a question. If I bring you a pickup truck, and I switched the clutch pedal and the brake pedal. How far do you think you're going to get? Oh, I couldn't drive that. Well, <laughs> I made my point, you know. I mean, like, leave oh, everything where it belongs. Switching gears once again, you know, let's talk about some no prep racing because originally, you know, I want to get your take on this. What were your thoughts when you first heard of no prep and started to take it off? Were you like most drag racer, like, this is the dumbest thing on earth? Or were you all in about it right off the bat? No, I was against it. Everybody knows that. I was really against it. You know, Lizzie was doing good. But, you know, we, we had really, right about that time, a lot of people don't know, I geared the car. She went and got her license in Virginia. We were thinking of going to NHRA. And then they started with all these new rules and changes in the cars. And so it kind of never happened. We stayed with PDRA, but... Um, I wanted Lizzie to get, you know, go to the next level, you know, make some. Because I, I tell Lizzie all the time, it's hard to make a living drag racing. And now she happened to be at the right place at the right time. Discovery loves her. Um, so I went to one and I said, wow, there's something here. This is still racing, the no prep deal. And uh, we did really well. We won three in a row, unfortunately. The car started coming around. It wasn't built for what I was trying to throw at it. So the car got away from us. 
Since then, Bickles worked on it. We fixed it. Robert Hayes has worked on it. They all work together. We all, everybody works together on my team, you know. We've got the car good, and we're building her. I'll let the cat out of the bag, a brand new no prep car. It'll be something special. I'm not going to tell you what it is exactly, but uh, so I really like the no prep deal. It's just, I'll tell you what it is. It's the racing I did, match racing. That's about the track surface. We didn't have uh, tractors. We didn't have what we, like you said, we had some rosin we'd brush down, you know, with a brush. But, you know, you were at the mercy of the track. Sure, we weren't going that fast. Cars are faster now. But you got to adjust to the track so that becomes an equalizer. Uh, but it's still racing. Uh, then we got a curveball because of the COVID and had to go and actually race on the highway. And I wasn't a fan of that at all. And I'm still not sold a hundred percent, but the way they treat Lizzie and she's been really safe. I mean, there were some pretty wild crashes in Wyoming and Nebraska. I mean, guys, I mean, they just, if they admit to it and most of them did, they drove over their head and Lizzie, is really pretty good about that. She will not drove or drive over her head. You know, she'll quit when she has to quit. But that's a little sketchy for me. And I'll tell you something else that throws me a curve with that deal. Where do you go test? Yeah. Think about it. <laughs> Where do we go? Get out on 85 and shut the road down and try to make a hit. And then you go to a different road. It's really, really a tuner's game. It's going to take a week got blindsided and only had two months to get ready for it. Went out there with a the big motor, figured we could run it on motor one stage. That thing was out of control. It's like a light switch. You know, we probably made it down 50% of the times because of that. But uh, this year we're going to keep that car for that. If she does it again, make a smaller engine for it that we're working on now. And try to adjust for it. But I'm really, I'm hoping the no prep really takes hold because that's what I think brings a lot to the sport. I mean, everybody, listen, they have two and a half million viewers. Do the math. Gainesville, when they have it, whenever they have Pro Mod, has maybe 200,000, two and a half million, Brian. I mean, just they badmouth the, you know, the no prep deal that it really ain't racing. Well, it's got sponsors. Just look at the people that advertise on that show. You don't have no lightweights. I mean, you got some heavy hitter sponsors that are on there paying advertising time, which we're getting all the exposure. Our sponsors love it now. And I'm, I'm, I'm really behind the no prep deal, but I'm not 100% sold on that cash day deal and the arm drop deal and Although I do have a lot of fun with JJ. I can tell you that. Everybody hates him. I have no problem with him. I could only imagine the conversations and the back and forths that don't make it on camera that you guys have. Well, I can tell you one, and he'll tell you. As JJ, I'm from Jersey, so forget about your hustle with me because it ain't happening. I said, what you did here when he won, you know the deal. I said, you uh, invited us to a card game. You had the mark deck. I didn't have mine. But you can bet your life the next time I'll have my mark deck when we come and run you again. And we laugh about it. But, you know, everybody else takes it to heart. He's a showman. He's done well for himself. He's a hustler. But uh, we have a lot of fun. You know, everybody hates him because he's who he is. But, hey, he's making money. He's doing his job. You know, I've, I've been very fortunate that I've been able to see a lot of the Street Outlaw stuff from behind the scenes, met some of the guys, hung out with them, you know, and really got to know them. And it's interesting, one of the things that they will always tell you is that the producers tell you is this is a show first and a race second. The racing isn't staged, but we have to have a show. And I try to explain to people, it's a lot like back in, you know, when professional wrestling was absolutely at its max peak, it was because of people wanted the show. They wanted the personalities. The, what happens in the ring is absolutely not fake, but people want that those personalities, the people to root for. And I think that's what's helped Street Outlaws is it's a mechanical form of like late 90s professional wrestling. 
you're, that pretty well sums it up. The producer told me that when I first, he said, you know, I don't know if you saw that one no prep deal. Eric Bain uh, got a rerun that he shouldn't have got. And I kind of got in his face a little, got heated there a little bit. And then I said, ah, let's just rerun it. But he had put oil down. And the starter is the final call of any kind of race. And we all know that. If he says you're leaking oil, push it back. He signaled me. Lizzie made a single. We get down to the scales. They said, you got to rerun. I said, what are you talking about? Starter told us to go. Well, they overruled the starter. Later, they come over and not apologize, but said, Pat, this is a TV show. That was our decision. You got to get used to that. And from then on, I'm good with it. I got to go along with whatever. Like you said, it's a TV show. We'll adjust to it. We'll do it accordingly, you know, and, uh, I think, like I said, I think the no prep deal, we're going to be pretty badass there. We've got some new stuff we're working on, and uh, I got to get a hold of this. If we're going to run like we did in Wyoming and Nebraska, the cash days, the um, the other deal with JJ, you know, uh, we got to get our ducks in a row. And I kind of know it's going to take a little different car setup, but uh, we'll get there. We'll do it. I mean, they may get out to. This is one of the things that kind of cracks me up. You know, they, oh, well, you see how hard this is? Well, buddy, why don't you come to Bradenton and try to qualify with 34 cars there? Let's see how hard that is. It's all hard. It, and it comes down to they have more laps than we do right now. But we'll get there, and we'll get there fast because it's it, it, it's hard, but it's not that hard, Brian. It's, it's amazing I always, I'm so lucky I get to go to all these different kinds of events and see top level pro mod and top level no prep racing and top level radial racing. And to me, no prep racing just has this like, it's a different feel to it. It's like a mixture of grudge racing and your, your, your top level heads up racing and street racing all mixed into one. Like people, when you're at Outlaw Armageddon and Ryan Martin does a burnout and the announcers behind it he's racing someone else from the 405 people are losing their minds like you don't hear it any other race and it's there's no like it's not a tv show there this is like legit these dudes are there doing their thing and it's it's truly amazing to watch well and you know and a guy like me that grew up street racing it brings me back to that day so i'm reliving it and uh i love it i mean i i look Ask everybody probably that's good. Well, I don't know about some of the millionaires club. I don't know if they've ever street race, but I'm sure John Force has been on the street once a time when he was a teenager. We all have. We're all ex-street racers, if you think about it. And I think it when it, you, you look at that, you know, like I had Ron Caps on the show last week, and he, you know, he paid his dues wrenching on these cars. He knows how they work. You know, same thing with John Force and these other guys is the old school guys that have turned the wrenches, driven the rig and done everything. It doesn't matter how much budget you give them. They're going to figure out a way to win. And when you start giving them more budget, that's when things get interesting because it's, it's that ability to tune and learn and they don't solve the problem with the wallet. They solve it with their noggin and they figure out, I'm going to figure yeah, I'm going to learn how to beat you one way or another. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of my take in, I'm really excited about Lizzie's career now. She can pick up her own show. She's got, you know, she's just got to be wanting to do it, which I kind of let a little cat in the bag. We're going to Vegas. They've announced it, so I can say a little bit about it. They're going to do an all-girl show, which we're getting a lot of heat over. The guys are crying about it. Well, why don't you do more for us? And you can't do this show. Well, it's an all-girl show. I'm sorry. Lizzie kind of fit the bill. It's three of JJ's girls and Lizzie and some other girls, you know, are going to go out and call out guys in the street race, but they're slower cards. It's a daily driver kind of deal. And I'm pretty excited about that. I think it's going to take off. Well, it really goes back to my day driving all the way to Queens, racing on connecting highways when I was 17. I, I just think it's uh, the, the viewer kind of can relate to it. You know, they're, on some back road street racing somebody or at a traffic light, it's still being done. You know, I don't, I don't condone that. You know, I'm not 
uh, I like the legal, you know, they block the road off and it's pretty safe, you know, as far as safe as you can be. But um, it's as safe as you can be trying to send a pro mod down a, a street, essentially. Exactly. We got to slow them way down. It was a little sketchy in Wyoming. I told Lizzie, you move over, you know, you have no guardrail. Now you might think, okay, you go off in the dirt. Well, it's a ditch. You're, you saw those cars go up in there, and it was a, a bad deal because it's going to get a hold of that dirt and go over, you know. Your car's going to turn into a gymnast, and that's a bad ride. Exactly. Yeah, you know, To kind of close things out here, I've got two interesting questions I wanted we wanted to hit you up with. You know, outside of the injury, have you ever really considered getting back in the car and doing more driving? Is that is that itch there? Once in a while, you know, I mean, it's uh, – new car i don't want to let the cat out of the bag but it's going to be a car that i had i have another guy you mentioned nostalgia pro stock that bought my 86 oscar we're going to negotiate in february he uh wants me to put the cold car back together and i might drive that i actually got to drive two years ago at cordova the rear morrison car that uh, mark pappas owns that's a funny story too she comes up to me in the lanes he goes, hey, you want to drive that car? Goes, yeah, you, you think I'll let me drive it? I'll drive it. So I walk up to the guy. I don't have a suit. I don't have a helmet. I don't have anything. But I look in the car. It's levers, manual levers. It's what I'm used to. And uh, I said, sure, I'll drive. So the guy was all excited. You know, I got fit in his suit, put his gloves on, get in the car, get the helmets, get the seatbelts down. He looks at me, he goes, you want to run somebody or you want to make a signal? I said, no, I want to run somebody. I'm ready to go. He goes, you don't want to ride it around in the pits? I said, for what? Done this a couple times. Yeah. So he's, I get all in. Final thing, he opens the door. He goes, now, you know, you got to pull high gear for the burnout, you know, do it backwards and then pull second gear for you. I said, I got it, buddy. I got it. Just sit back. We got this. I went, I think I went 783. It'd been like 787. Went right down. We're in the Gwyn and Fairmont, which was kind of cool because I beat, you know, but I got I didn't beat him. Got to run him at Pomona in the final of that car, you know. So uh, actually, Gwyn won the final at Pomona that first year in '81 when I, I won. So it was cool. But uh, you know, it was just one of them deals. Is that and then Tucci, of course, tells us that this burn down. And you've heard Tucci. He oh. had the whole crowd up on their feet. We sat there for three minutes. <laughs> oh. And Tucci's up there foaming at the mouth, screaming at you. Oh, it was out of control. Everybody's on their feet. They loved it. I had a ball, you know, made a run, you know, went down. But it was like riding a bike. But, you know, so that gave me, I would do some of that, you know, maybe make some hits in Lizzie's car. Like I said, I'll scuff tires in once in a while and, do some stuff but I, I i don't really i enjoy watching lizzie drive now because of the driver she's became you know she's kind of became a mini me you know she drives like i drive and she's got that heart and i enjoy it piggybacking off of that compared to driving do you enjoy that did you enjoy tuning and building as much or more than the driving aspect of it i'd say the same I'd have to tell you the same, you know, I, I always love driving, you know, I, I've won, I've been fortunate to win every category, pro stock, uh, pro Steve, pro mod, you know, uh, I was the first uh, EFI car to win in pro mod at Norwalk, if you remember that, you know, and that kind of the whole EFI, you know, took off from there. I mean, we basically, they probably won't admit it, but we made everybody go to EFI after that. I mean, you couldn't, there isn't a set of carburetors left, I don't think, out there, but uh, that can be competitive. Well, Pat, our time here is coming to an end, and I like to give my guests every opportunity at the end to impersonate John Force and plug their sponsors and where they can be found at, talk about what's going on. So uh, I'm going to turn it over to you, brother. You can tell people where they can find you at on social media, what you got going on, who you need to thank. So, uh, floor is yours okay well first you know they can find me on i got a facebook page and then i have pat bc racing engines lizzie's on instagram they can follow lizzie uh but sponsors you know edelbrock has come back on board this year again even bigger 
uh, Lucas are, are, you know, our primaries, but we have so many to name that have been with me for years. Uh, ACL Burnings, Jessel Rockers. I mean, it's just on and on. I don't want to miss anybody. So every time I get to this part, I just thank everybody that helps us. You know how we are. Pull up a picture of the car. That that's And last but least, I'd like to thank our fan base. I think Lizzie has a bigger fan base than I have. I'm Lizzie's dad now, not Pat. You see, so. <laughs> a new role, a new role. A new role, you know, but uh, she's got a hell of a fan base, and I want to help her all I can, you know. If she can pick up something out of this show, you know, eventually I'm all for it, you know, and uh, she's doing well, and we'll see how this new show does. Just keep an eye on it, everybody out there. It'll be pretty cool, and we'll see how it goes. But just I want to thank everybody. Like I said, fans are my important asset. You know, I've always – stopped what I'm doing to sign a shirt or sign a little kid's card or whatever. Everybody knows that about me. Awesome, Pat. Well, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. We look forward to seeing you out the track and uh, hopefully we'll see you soon. All right. Thanks for having me, Brian. Good talking to you.